a college student calls home one evening. And this college student had been a Christian for several years. And just like anybody who becomes a Christian, he felt that safety and that peace that came when he first became a Christian. But something had happened after that. And the fear had returned. And this Christian had a problem that he he had this nagging feeling of never being good enough. But something happened on this night. Someone came and discussed Bible verses that he knew existed, but he hadn't fully grasped. And so the same Bible that had once given him hope had given him hope once again. And so on this night, when talking to his mom, he says, for the first time in years, I actually feel safe. Meanwhile, there's a man who tries to live a godly life. And he never feels like it's enough. Jesus' statement, my burden is light, just feels so hard to understand. And so finally, he just gives up. He says, you know, if I'm never going to be good enough, then I might as well stop trying. Meanwhile, there's a man who has a father. And he had a father who had not loved him unconditionally. And so he never really had the right relationship with his father. And this man struggles with doubt after decades of having a relationship with his God. And he just says one day, it's like, why can't God just give me a text message? It's all I want. Just a message that says, you're all right. I, that's all I want. And so sadly, he has a hard time seeing his heavenly father loving him much better than his earthly father had. And meanwhile, a boy struggles to get asleep. And the reason is, is his brother sleeps in the same room. And his brother, fearing God's judgment, prays over and over and over again, God forgive me, God forgive me. All of these are real stories. They're stories that come from people in this room. And one of them is my story. Did you catch the song that we just sang? It was Blessed Assurance. Let me tell you what the song was not. It was not the song Blessed Statistical Chance. And the song did not go like this. Oh, blessed statistical chance. Jesus is probably mine. Oh, what a probability of glory divine. Now, if you've ever struggled with having that peace, despite the fact that you were a faithful Christian, then I have good news for you, because there's a book in the Bible written specifically for this problem, whose central message is that there is no fear in love. And that, that book is First John. So go ahead and turn there. Four things I want you to see here. John's going to offer several solutions. First, he's going to talk about how forgiveness is a permanent attitude, not an occasional act. Two, he's going to talk about how Jesus will be your advocate. Then, number three, he's going to talk about this idea of self-purification. He's going to use language that was actually applied to sacrifice. And then finally, he's going to offer a test. People say, I just, you know, I need I need that text message, I need that checkbox, so he's going to give you one. And that test is brotherly love. So that John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1 starts like this. He says, this is what we proclaim to you. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and our hands have touched concerning the word of life. And the life was revealed and we have seen and testified and announced to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. 
what we have seen and heard, we announce to you too, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. He says, look, this is a real story, and I know it's a real story because I was there. I touched him, and I heard his voice. Now, John, I think, is going beyond just saying that he is a good source. He's also pointing out that Jesus came in the flesh. And this is going to be important later because John is writing in the context of an opponent. And this opponent has cut out the cross. Right? This opponent is going to say that Christ didn't get crucified, that Christ didn't suffer, and as a result, as John points out, and that means that Christ didn't love, not the way that John thinks he did. And so if you cut out the cross, you cut out the very gospel itself. And then in verse 4, he tells you why he is writing. Thus we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. And at the end, he's going to talk about how he writes these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's what he's talking about by joy here. Now, John is going to assume that his listeners are faithful. So it's important. Because John is not going to tell you how to be saved. John is going to tell you, but how do you know that you're saved? Now, he's gonna, he brings in this concept of darkness and light, just like the Gospel according to John, verse 5. Now, this is the Gospel message that we have heard from him and announced to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, and yet we keep on walking in the darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. Now, he talks about walking in darkness and light. What does that mean? Because sometimes when people define walking in the light means complete and utter perfection. Now, if that's your view, First John is not going to make a lot of sense to you. But actually, even this idea of walking in the light, if you look at throughout Scripture, it's really never defined quite like that. In Luke 1, verse, chapter 1, verse 6, it talks about Zechariah and Elizabeth. And it says, They were righteous in the sight of the Lord, following all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blamelessly. Now, do you think they were perfect? Right. Keep reading and read about Zechariah. He was not a perfect man. Titus 1, verse 6 says the elders are supposed to be blameless. So they're supposed to be perfect. Right? Well, that doesn't make sense. Uh, was was Job perfect when he's described as blameless in Job verses 1, verse 8? And so I think you see here is that walk is not assuming absolute perfection. I mean, the whole gospel story is that we have a problem and we need to be fixed. So it, the whole gospel story doesn't assume perfection at all. And then John gets to the first solution. And it's this idea of being of forgiveness is a permanent attitude. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of his Son cleanses us from all sin. If you look at this, when it says... His, the blood of his son cleanses us from all sin. In, in Greek, there's something called the act of indicative, which is the form here. And it implies, in a certain sense, a continuous process. A lot of times the same argument is used in 1 Corinthians 16, when it talks about giving. And people say, well, Paul seemed to have in mind this very particular event in Jerusalem. So why would we take this idea from that, that it's something that we should continually do. And they argue, well, it's the act of indicative, which kind of implies something that continually happens. Okay, so what's the point here? The point here is that John never assumes perfection in Christians. He didn't say, well, there's this one cleansing back then, that, hey, then you're perfect, and everything goes, goes fine after that. John does not assume that. You'll see that throughout the book, he assumes 
that Christians still do, are still imperfect, and they still have to have their sins cleansed. So, cleansing, it says, is offered to those walking in the light. This is what he says. Now, some might say, okay, yes, but it says you have to walk in the light. And so they define walking in the light as meaning that, well, any sin means you're going to lose your salvation. Because as soon as you sin, you're not walking in the light, and you just start all over again. So, if that's true, then this is how they're reading this passage. Your sins are cleansed if you don't sin. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Don't worry, your imperfections are removed as long as you're perfect. No, see, John is not assuming perfection. He never assumes that. He's saying this is a benefit of walking in the light. Now, I will make explicit what John makes implicit, which is he does say that this is conditional. You have to actually walk in the light. There's a difference between somebody who just walks away from the faith. John's not talking about that. He also mentions, by the way, this idea, then you will have fellowship with one another. So we're going to talk about that in a second. That's important later. Then we get to verses 8 through 10. If we say that we do not bear the guilt of sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous, forgiving us our sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. What some people look at is they look at this passage and they see, okay, so what this is is this is a process, right? You, If you have sinned, you lose your salvation, you pray the prayer, and you re-enter a state of salvation. It's important to understand here that when he's talking about confessing, he's talking about more than just words. Sometimes we use confessing, I mean just to say something. He's, he's meaning something beyond that. It has to do with an attitude under it. It's more than something just said. It actually means like agreement with God. And many times, if you look at this word, homologo, it is translated like that in other passages. And so the point here is, when we confessed our support for Jesus, it meant that we were agreeing with his assessment of us. That's part of the package. And Jesus' point over and over again is that sins are not just something bad that I do, it indicates something deeper is wrong with us. Right? There's something in there that is wrong. The bad actions are the bad fruit from a bad tree. Right? It's the attitude, ultimately, that Jesus has an issue with. And so Jesus' answer is to not just stop doing the sins. His answer is become the right type of person. Right? You can't just keep plucking the bad fruit from the bad tree and think that you're going to get anything but more bad fruit. And the danger is is that sometimes people will pay lip service to Jesus, but they don't pay life service to Jesus because they didn't become a new person. But John is also noting that what got you in is also what keeps you in. Let me word it this way. How did you get saved? Here's what none of you are going to say. I got saved because I was perfect. You'd say, no, this, that was exactly the opposite. I knew that I needed him because I was anything but perfect. And so our story begins when we have an understanding that I have a problem and I need help. And this is what John is talking about. And what you couldn't gain by moral perfection, you don't get to keep with moral perfection. And so you got in the same, the same way you, you, you stay in the same way you got in. With a confession that Jesus is the Christ and he got it right. And he still gets it right. And when people turn this into a mere process, it turns out they wind up losing the whole spirit of this passage. 
Remember Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. So the story was Peter comes up, comes up to Jesus and he says, How many times do I have to forgive? Even seven times? It, seven times? It's like, wow, it's a whole seven times. He, he thinks this is almost impressive. Like, Jesus, I need a number, I need a count, I need a threshold. And such a view is, it's so cold, calculating, and statistical. And Jesus looks at him and he says, no, it's not seven. It's not even seven times seven. It's not even 70. He says, no, Peter, it's 70 times seven. And you know what we do? Well, we do the math. 490. (laughs) And if you focus on the multiplication, of course, you miss the point. Because Jesus' point is that there is no limit. Because for Jesus, forgiveness is not an occasional act. A permanent attitude. In chapter 2, John starts. He says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Likely the opponent is teaching some sort of permissiveness, that it's okay to sin. And John's saying, no, look, it's not why I'm writing these things. I'm writing you so that you know these things so that you may not sin. And then he gets to his second solution, which is the advocacy of Jesus. An advocate is... Someone who stands in for you. Look at look what the latter half of chapter two, verse one says. It says, "But if anyone does, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one." An advocate is someone who stands in and up for someone else. It's kind of weird because when I first became a Christian, I always imagined Judgment Day like this. I imagined myself standing alone. And it's dark everywhere else. I can't tell, I can't see anything else around me. But somehow, even though it's dark everywhere else, there's a light on me. And then I'm called to give an answer. And what are you going to say? I tried my best. I, I, I mean, I made, I'm not a perfect person. All of it just seems weak. But the more I understood the gospel, the more I understand that this isn't the case because you're not. Alone, the point is here is you have an advocate. And you have somebody who will give an answer for you. Notice again here that John is not assuming that walking in the light means perfection. If anyone does sin, he says, we have an advocate. So I, I have this weird practice where I write myself letters where if I if I could tell myself from years ago what I know now. I write it down. And I mean, it's not like I try to send it to myself, because you know, that would be weird. <laughs> and I want to read you part of one of these letters. It says, Reflect upon the gospel that you teach. If you teach the gospel by which you can have confidence, then why is your heart filled with fear and doubt? If you know how to have salvation, then teacher, do you not teach yourself? You do not teach the words by which you can have confidence, but the gospel by which you might be kind of saved-ish. Reflect upon the gospel. Find out how one can be saved and know it. And then teach that. You know, sometimes we, we send this message, it's like, look, I've got the problem to sin. We've got the gospel. You know, come to me. I know the gospel. In which you can sometimes, somehow, somewhat, kind of, almost, probably be saved-ish. And then we're shocked when people are not banging down the doors 
to see what we have to offer. But the gospel story at its heart is that you are not alone. And then keep reading, verse 3. Now this we know that we have come to know God, if we keep His commandments. Now remember, back in Luke chapter 1, verse 6, it talks about how Elizabeth and Zechariah, they kept the commandments blamelessly. But I don't think here he necessarily means perfection. He means we take them seriously. We don't say, well, you know, there's a bunch of commandments, but I don't really like that one. I'm just not even going to try. No, he means somebody who's really trying, who takes them seriously. Now, you can see this because if you look at the next part, it becomes more obvious. He's talking about people who are not actually trying to keep his commandments. But the one who says, I've come to know God and yet does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in such a person. But some, some will claim to keep the commandments, but they're really not even trying. Then look in chapter in verses 5 and 6. He says, But whoever obeys his word, truly in this person, the love of God has been perfected. And it is by this that we know we're in him. The one who says he resides in God ought to walk just as Jesus walked. Look, he says the love of God is perfected in those who love God. Now this is going back to this, this other theme that John has throughout the book. Which is that if you understand the love of God, then you will become a different type of person and live according to that. Now he says, the one ought to walk just as Jesus walked. So what is he talking about? Keep reading. Verse 7. Dear friends, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment to you, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have already heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Okay, so Jesus, what John says here is, he says, you have to walk like Jesus walked, right? And then he says, I'm not writing to you a new commandment. And you need to see what he's doing here. This phrase, new commandment, is what Jesus said right before he died in the Passover meal. And everything he tells them there is about the crucifixion. It's about how he had loved them. And he says, I need you guys to love like that. And so when John's saying you have to walk as Jesus walked, he's saying you have to love like Jesus loved. Then he goes on. Verse 9. The one who says he is in the light but hates his fellow Christian is still in the darkness. And the one who loves his fellow Christian resides in the light. And there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his fellow Christian is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and does not even know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And so he's saying, that, again, this concept of love, that if you don't love your brethren, then you have missed the gospel. You have totally misunderstood it. Now, as I said before, John is writing in the context of some sort of opponent. It's hard to know exactly what this opponent is teaching as I heard one scholar say it's like you're hearing one side of the of a telephone call but you can kind of figure it out the opponent may be a guy named Sorrentus who was in the late first century so the timing's about right or some sort of form of early Gnosticism which actually makes sense because if you look at Gnosticism there's a few things here and if you line what they opponents taught what John says and you align it with Gnosticism it actually does seem to fit so the opponent must have taught some sort of new knowledge. Well, how would I know that? Well, because John says you have no need that anyone teach you. Now that may strike you as odd. Well, what do you mean we don't need to be taught? Like, well, then why are we here? We already. John's point is you already know the gospel. Okay. 
I'm not going to teach you anything that's brand new. Remember, he goes back and reminds them of what they already know. But Gnostics, the word Gnostic even comes from the word to know. These guys taught some sort of new knowledge. And they made it all about this, like academics. It might, they must have taught some sort of sin, possibly permissiveness. Because he says, if anybody loves the world, John says, the love of the Father is not in him. And so it must be that this person is teaching love for the world in an incorrect way. The Gnostics also rejected some of the apostles. So they used an edited Gospel of Matthew. So they couldn't even use the whole Gospel of Matthew. They had to edit it because they didn't even like all the parts. And they rejected Paul and John. Okay, well, John points out, whoever's not from God does not listen to us. So they, this fits. They also taught that Jesus did not come in the flesh, which John points out, Jesus has come in the flesh. And they taught that he wasn't the Christ in a certain sense. I'll qualify this to say it. So John points out, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? What the Gnostics taught was that Jesus and the Christ were two separate beings. And that the Christ was the part from God. And that at Jesus at his baptism, the Christ came down and became part of Jesus. Then they argued that before the crucifixion, the Christ separated himself from Jesus. You need to see the significance in this. Because if that is what you think, then that means, and by their definition, the Spirit never really embodied the flesh. And it means that that God didn't suffer. And John says, look, we touched his hands. The hands would have felt every nail. We heard his voice, the same one that would cry out from the cross. And what the Gnostics had done is they had taken the offense of the cross and they had removed it. And so what they had was a gospel with no cross, no pain, no suffering, and as John points out, the no enduring love. And so by removing the cross from the gospel, they removed the gospel itself. Chapter 3. John starts... See what sort of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called God's children. And indeed, we are. And for this reason, the world does not know us, because it didn't know Him. Look what he says here. He says, we should be called God's children, and indeed, we are. He says, you're God's children right now. (coughs) And then John brings in the third point. This idea of self-purification. Verse 3. And whoever has this hope focused on him purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. This word, if you look at the way this word for purifying is used in other contexts, it winds up referring to, in many cases, the ceremonial preparing to go to the temple. Like that kind of cleansing. And what John's saying is that it's in your hands now because of what Jesus has done. Right, you don't need to be given it, you already have it. Provided that hope is in him. It doesn't say hope in yourself, it says in him. And so the point is, it's not that I get it right, but that he gets it right for me. Look at verse 4 too. It says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Indeed, sin is lawlessness. Did you catch this? It says practices sinning. Okay, this makes sense. There's a difference between one who makes a practice of it. We, we use that in English, even to this day. And then John is going to make a point here in the next few verses that had Jesus came to destroy sin, 
Remember, we talked about this idea of confession. And confessing means more than just words you use. It means that Jesus got it right and that you share Jesus' mission. And what, Jesus, what John's going to point out here is that Jesus' mission was to, came, to come and destroy sin. And so the question is, you have to ask, do I share that same mission? Verse 5, he starts. And you know that Jesus was revealed to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Everybody who resides in him does not sin. Everybody who sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as Jesus is righteous. And the one who practices sin is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. For this reason, for this purpose, the Son of God was revealed to destroy the works of the devil. And everybody who has been fathered by God does not practice sin, because God's seed resides in him. And thus he is not able to sin, because he has been fathered by God. And so the point here is that Jesus' mission was to destroy sin. It was to destroy the works of Satan. And so that should be our mission. Right? That was the confession. Jesus gets it right. And now John is going to point out, he's going to pick out this one most important attribute, which is the love of the brethren. Look in verse 10. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are revealed. Everyone who does not practice righteousness, the one who does not love his fellow Christian, is not of God. That's the, this is the big one, right? This is the attribute by which you can know. Anyone ask the question, why this? I mean, I could think of a hundred things to focus on. And I think the point is, is that God's objective is to make us like him, not just to act like it. God's point here, or John's point here, is God is not just trying to change what you do, he is trying to change who you are. And the point here is, if you, all you do is you just kind of follow the rules in a checkboxy way, then you're just going to miss the entire point. I've heard people say, and I, I don't criticize them for this, so I don't understand why they say it, where some people will do something nice for somebody. And somebody said, well, thank you for that. And they said, oh, I'm doing it for Jesus. And that is accurate, but I think it's only half the story. Because I think a more precise statement would be, I'm doing it because I'm like Jesus. It's not, I don't think the message we want to tell people is that, that, oh, well, you know, I love Jesus and you just happen to be in need and so it worked out. Rather, I think we want to tell people, I want to do things for you because of him. I love you because I love like Jesus. John is now going to point out a counterexample. And that example is Cain and Abel. So let's walk through this. Verse 11. For this is the gospel message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not like Cain, it was of the evil one and brutally murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Therefore, do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have crossed over from death to life because we love our fellow Christians. And the one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his fellow Christian is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. If you remember back, you go back to the story in Genesis chapter 4. And you have to ask the question, 
why did God prefer Abel over Cain? Like, why, what was the difference? I've heard some people say that, well, it's because God preferred animal sacrifices. And the more that I thought about this, the more that I have a hard time believing that that's the answer. Because if you actually go back and read the Torah, you will find that God actually commanded more than just any animal sacrifices. What I think the difference was is that God had regard for Abel's attitude and not for Cain's. Let me read you Genesis 4.4 very carefully. It says, The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. I think it's the attitude problem. And you might say, well, well, how do we know that Cain had an attitude problem? Guys, he murdered his brother. I mean, that is what John is saying here. And, and this fits with the New Testament in so many ways. You remember in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. And Jesus there says, If you're coming to present your gift at the altar, and then you remember that your brother has something against you. Okay, now if you stop there, what would most people say? Okay, I, I'm here, I'm at the altar, I've got my gift. And most people would say, you know, you should offer the gift, go make up with your brother, maybe. That is not what Jesus says. He says, you drop your gift, you go and be reconciled with your brother first. And then you give your gift. And Jesus' point here is that worship comes after your relationship. It comes after your attitude. And in a certain sense, this entire message here is that if you want a relationship with God, then you need to have a relationship with one another. What's really weird is I've been a part of a church that literally split over this. This passage right here. And because some of the brethren said, listen, it has to be handled by Sunday because, you know, that's when he says gift at the altar, that's worship. So therefore, if you have an issue with your brother, it must be handled by Saturday. And they combined it with another passage that talks about how do not let the sun go down in your wrath. And so they specified the exact time. Sundown, Saturday night. And so the very verses that were intended to pull us together actually tore us apart. And the issue was that people had made this passage cold, calculated, and statistical. And then John says, verse 16, We have come to know love by this, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and thus we ought to lay down our lives for our fellow Christians. But whoever has the world's possessions and sees his fellow Christian in need and shuts off his compassion against him, how can the love of God reside in such a person? He goes back to what Jesus has done. He goes back to the crucifixion. He says, that, folks, is how we know what love is. If you go to chapter 4, verse 15, the idea of confession comes up again. It says, if anybody confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God resides in him, and he in God. Again, it's just this point here. It's not just the words that we said in that confession. It's that the confession means a commitment, and the commitment means remaining. Did you see this word? How many times have we talked about it? The word reside over and over and over again in John. I counted the times. It's 24 times. It's not a long book. 24 times that John uses this word. And that's the point, is that it's not just taking the vow, it's living consistent with that vow that actually matters. You think about when we talk about 
marriage vows, wedding vows. The vows don't matter. It's the commitment that you made that actually matters. It's not the words. It's the commitment that matters. And this idea of reside, it means permanence. And it, this is he's telling us how we are to love, which is the stick around type of love. So it's not a place you visit. It's a place that you stay. I, so I work in California, and, well, not so much lately, but I used to go out about once every quarter to California. But I will tell you that I visit California. I do not reside there. Right? I reside in Indiana. And that's what a commitment means. It means you reside and you stick around. And the confession is made real every day of your life when you live according to that confession. And John's point here is that God is no fair-weather fan if you are no fair-weather fan either. Can you name me one relationship, just one, that you would say is a healthy relationship and it ends instantly on any mistake? We criticize people who divorce when somebody like burns the toast, as we say. It's a minor issue and they get divorced. And we say, that you know, that head is wrong. We criticize companies that fire hard-working, good employees because they just want to pad their third quarter earnings report. We see that's wrong. And yet sometimes we see that God's love, we think that it works the same way. And so we think it's like a, a light switch, in out, in out, in out, in out, all the time. Peace I leave with you, Jesus says in John 14, 27. My peace I give to you, he says, but I do not give it as the world gives. And right after that, He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. The point here is that Jesus gives love like we haven't seen in this world. Now John, he's he's working up to this test we talked about. And then he's going to come to, to verse 18. And I want to think about this verse for a second here. It says, there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears punishment has not been perfected in love. Okay, let's let's stop and think about this phrase. He says, whoever fears, he says they've not been perfected. But what exactly does that mean? Let me suggest three options. Okay, the first option is that whoever fears has not been perfected in love toward God. And so what this would be saying is that if you really loved God the way you should, then you wouldn't have this fear in your heart. The second option would be, well, he's saying that whoever fears has not been perfected in love toward others. Now, John does talk about loving your fellow brethren. And so that view would be saying that if you loved your fellow brethren more, then you wouldn't fear. And the third option is that John would be saying whoever fears has not been perfected in knowledge of God's love. And so the knowledge would be the problem. I'm convinced the first one is not it. Here's why. In John chapter 3, verse 1, he says... We are children now. John never says they don't love God. He seems to know that they do. I don't think it's the second one, because John never says that they don't love the brethren. He's pointing out that's the test. This is supposed to be something that gives them confidence. I'm convinced it is the third one. Remember, John tells you why he wrote this book. He wrote it not to tell them how to be saved. He tells them how to know that they're saved. Knowledge is the problem. 
If you go back to verse 16, just a little up, it says this, so that we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Go up just a few more verses, up to verse 10. He says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Right? So it's, he's looking at it from the opposite direction. But this knowledge, as John points out, this is knowledge that has to change you. I write you these things, he says, so that you may not sin. If you understand this, this is going to change the type of person that you are. Look at verse 19. We love because he loved us first. You see, it's it's not about us, it's about him. You can't get this backwards. He loved us first. It is about his love first and foremost. And if you get that, if you, and I mean really understand it, that is going to make you a different type of person. I heard somebody once say, he said, we are what we worship. And my fear is that if you think God loves with this fair weather love, that you will love like that. When you're a Christian, for some time, you hear things from Christians that you thought that you thought they knew better. And, and these are not examples from here. I'm not preaching any of this because I see an issue here in Avon, because I don't. But I remember when a, a person, a Christian, had come back to the Lord. And this person had repented. And I remember people saying things. I remember one person saying, Oh, I will forgive this person, but I will not have a relationship with them. Even though the very definition of forgiveness is that you have a relationship despite there have been an impediment. I remember another person saying, oh, I will not assume that they're repentant. I will not be made a fool again until they prove it to me. And I, I wish I wish I could take people like this and I could sit them at the foot of the cross for just one minute and I could point and say, look up there at that appalling heap of flesh on that cross. You look at him when he's so deformed, he doesn't even look like a man. You look at him while he is wearing nothing but his own dried blood. And now, you tell me that you cannot forgive. You tell me that it's your glory that matters too much. I don't understand, an elder in the Church of Christ once wrote, how is it that we can have people who hear sermon after sermon after sermon and somehow manage to look less and less and less like Jesus. And I don't understand, how could we sit here and take the Lord's Supper on a Sunday and think about how much God has forgiven us and then forget it all by Monday when it's time for us to forgive? Jesus' love is not cold, calculating, and statistical. And woe to the one who promotes this idea of calculated forgiveness when that man sins 491 times. Look at verse 20. He's going to tell you this. Let me tell you who's not a real Christian. If anyone says, I love God and yet hates his fellow Christian, he is a liar. Because the one who does not love his fellow Christian, whom he has seen, cannot love God, who he has not seen. 
Now he's going to get to this commandment. What is it? It's this one commandment. This one commandment, this is this overarching commandment. He doesn't say, here's the list of commandments. He says, this one commandment, you've got to get this. And in verse 21, the commandment that we have from him is this. Be the best scholar. Know the history, know the Greek, know the Hebrew, gain degrees, write commentary. Wait, that's not what he says. The commandment is this. Be able to preach well, be able to teach the adult Bible class, go to foreign countries and baptize many. That's not what he says either. Have perfect attendance, and I mean the classes, the meetings, and even personal studies. He doesn't say that. It's not to say that any of that is unimportant. Of course it is important. This is what he says. The commandment, the one who loves God should love his fellow Christian too. And at first you look at this and you're like, that's it? That's the commandment? Wait, it's not It's not a, quote, big thing? This is so simple. This commandment is so simple that a Christian can do it on his first day of new life. And yet, it is so deep, you can do it for your entire life, and you will still have room to get better at it. And notice what he says here. He doesn't say, go see Appendix 1-55 through for this other list of rules. He's saying, this is the rule. And John isn't saying that Jesus didn't have other commandments. Of course Jesus had other commandments. But he's saying, if you don't get this commandment, you don't get any of the commandments, because none of the other ones are going to make any sense to you. How shall I love? He doesn't just tell us to love, he tells us how to love. And you know what he says? You love the way you have been loved. You love like that. That stick around kind of love. It's not the big things like we tend to think of it. But I tell you, this love, it shows up in a whole host of small things, done over and over and over again. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul talks about this, and he says love is a bigger thing than even prophecy. But like I said, it's not just one big thing. It's something we do over and over and over again. It's not always obvious. But it's a host of small things that we abide in. Right? That's that word that John keeps using. Matthew 10, 42, Jesus says, just a cup of cold water, and his name given. Just a cup of cold water. But it, it shows up as a small thing. Matthew 25, I will confess to you that I realized about two weeks ago I've been reading this passage wrong. Because I missed one word, one word in the Greek. And I'm gonna I'm gonna read it to you, but I want to focus on the word that I missed. It says this. 25 verse 40. I tell you the truth. Just as you did it for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did it for me. See, I always read it as, as long as you did it for the least of these brothers or sisters. He says, as long as you did it for one, one of the least of these brothers or sisters, you did it for me. And it's kind of weird because Jesus, it's like he's trying to minimize, he's trying to make it small. But if you couple this with what John is saying, it makes so much sense. You just do one thing for the least person. But that adds up when you abide in it, when you do it over and over and over again. You know, we see this in concept when we exercise. You know, what happens when you exercise once? Nothing. <laughs> right? And so, what do you do? You give up. Right? You don't abide in it. But here's what happens when you exercise for a day. 
And then you do it for another day. And then you do it for a week. And then you do it for a month. And then you do it for a year. Then you will notice that your jeans start to fit a little looser. The groceries start to feel a little lighter. And you feel more than a little bit better. And that's when you will know that a whole lot of nothing added up to something. But you have to abide in it, right? You have to keep on keeping on. Because ultimately, exercise is more about consistency than intensity. And John's point is that love actually works the same way. Because you keep on doing these so-called little things, and when you keep on doing them, when you really abide in them, that will change the kind of person that you are. And that is the big thing. I sadly... I will tell you that I know of men, and they will do all the big things. I mean, they will preach, they will go to foreign countries, they'll do all the scholarly things. And yet, the people that are closest to them know that they are not loved. If you're a single guy, let me tell you what you cannot do. This is not going to work. You cannot just go to a girl you don't know, introduce yourself, Give her the keys to a brand new BMW and then propose. That's not going to work. And if that does work, you need to run. I mean, just, just, just don't, okay? Here's what does work. What works is when you go to the refrigerator to get yourself a cold drink, and you get her one too. And she didn't even ask. Because when you do that sort of thing over and over and over again, that is when she will know that she is loved. Because ultimately, it's the little things that tell people that we love them. David Brooks points out, he says, you know, we've got an entire culture of people who live for what they can put on their resume, but they don't live for their eulogy. And you get people who's like, oh, I've got lots of patents, I've created companies, i made a lot of money, and i bought myself a big boat. Let me tell you that funerals, they don't have a reading of your resume involved. And if they do, because that's all you have, well, then that's even sadder. I've been to many funerals. And I will tell you the things people do say. They say the little things. Someone fairly recently just told me, they were out gardening, doing landscaping. And one of the neighborhood kids came by And so this person cut a little flower and said, here you go, give this to your mom. What this person didn't know was that this neighbor had just gotten really bad news. And her child comes in with this little flower. And it just made her day. And the person who was telling me this story kept saying over and over again, like this person, this other woman mentioned it several times. Like, it really meant something to her. And she, she was surprised. She was like, it was just a flower. It was just a small thing, right? But I don't think it was a small thing. Because the flower was just a token. A token that somebody in this world actually cared. And that is the biggest thing this world has to offer. And that is the sort of thing that people will remember you for. John brings it to a close in chapter 5. And in verse 13, he tells you again why he wrote this. 
I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Listen, if you think that a Christian's life is constantly popping in and out of salvation, you think it's like a light switch. You have two options out of this. You can try One, you can try to convince yourself that, well, you have no sin, you're just perfect. And so you minimize sin. But when you do that, you need to know that you make God a liar. That's what John says. The second option is that you can say you have a statistical chance of being saved. And that is not going to give you confidence. But look what John says here. He says, but you can have assurance. But you need to know the way in which you're loved. And when you know that, and really know that, the way it sh- when it shows up, when it becomes so part of you that it can't help but express itself in the way that you treat others, when you know that, then you're going to understand how to have this assurance. I remember the words of a a dying woman. And she was surprised that so many people, so many of us had come out to visit her in her final days. And she said, you know, I'm surprised because I never did the big things, she said. I only did the small ones. But in many ways, the small things are the big things, and they always were. And so this week says, the thing you got to do is you've got to do that one thing for the least of these, where you get no credit back. Okay, you need to do that one thing. But you need to do that one thing for a day. And then you do it for another day, and then you do it for a week, and then you do it for a month, and then you do it for a year, and then you do it for a decade, and then you do it for your entire life. You abide in it the way John is talking about. So that at the end of your life, you will be able to say, with blessed assurance in your heart, that I never did the big things, only the small ones. And if we can help you with that, please come while we stand and sing.